Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. Today we feature a remarkably honest conversation with Dr. Frank Ferris, Professor of Mathematics and Chair at Santa Clara University. Frank is a fourth-generation Californian who grew up in the Los Angeles area. He attended Pomona College as an undergraduate and earned his PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He studied geometry and, over time, that original mathematical interest expanded into a rich study of mathematics and art. He is the author of Creating Symmetry, The Artful Mathematics of Wallpaper Patterns, which he published in 2015 with Princeton University Press. He has served as editor of Mathematics Magazine and is currently a member of the MAA's Council on Publications and Communications. In this conversation, above all else, Frank talks openly about what it means to belong to yourself. He also offers a guide for writing and discusses the importance of a home for your heart. So please join us as we talk with Frank. Hi, Frank. Hi, Hi Frank. Hi, Deanna. Hi, Della. What a pleasure to see you. Nice to see you. And Della, I wanted to say that, you know, as a member of the Council on Publications and Communications, I read through all of the reports, uh, you know, from uh, editors. And I was just reminded again how much I enjoy your writing. Your voice comes through so beautifully. So I... Oh, well, that just makes my day. So let's keep going. Keep going. (laughs) Well, Frank, we're so glad to have you here. And we'd like to start by asking you to tell us your story. Well, I, uh, I come from a background of great privilege, I have to say. My parents were both uh, teenagers during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and their families suffered from food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I know that that influenced their desire to give me and my siblings a very um, wonderful suburban upbringing. I'm the youngest of four children and uh, from uh, in the greater LA area. And for me, I think that my education benefited just really greatly by having the example of my older siblings. And so when I could see them achieving things academically in our very academically driven household, um, I, it was easy for me to learn what they were doing and then do that before Mm -hmm. it was time to do that. And I I have a vivid memory of my sister, Patty. Um, She was learning about what negative numbers were and subtraction, and she explained it to me just as a a fun thing. And she said, so so what do you think um, seven minus 10 is? And I said, negative three. And she (laughs) ran out of the room and said, Frank's a genius. So, you know, so just for doing something simple where, you know, I got what she was saying, um, I got a lot of attention. So I learned that, you know, this was a good way to get attention was, you know, by just um, understanding things. Um, So my parents were um, well-educated considering the Uh, background that they grew up in. They met as music education majors at UCLA. But my mother kind of wanted to be um, something. She really liked math. And she expressed a desire to become an astronomer. And her professor told her, oh, no, women can't be astronomers because at night they have to be at home with their families. So I and, you know, I don't think that I think she was very happy with the life she had as a musician. She was a music teacher. But um, she she remembered that enough to tell us about it. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
In some sense, I feel that I grew up in a feminist household. My oldest two siblings were my sisters, Carol and Patty, and then Lloyd and I were the younger two boys. And so it was a household where women's voices were really heard. And I think that that helps me today. Mm -hmm. Um, So I excelled in school. I excelled at my music lessons. And um, in high school, my next formative experience was when I was 15, I got to go to a summer program for um, mathematics. It was in 1972, a summer science training program at San Diego State University. And it was the first time in my life that I felt that I was with my my cohorts, you know, with my people, with my tribe. And there was friendly competition among those people. There there was not posturing. It was really quite wonderful. So kudos to the managers, you know, of that program. Um, It also seemed it was quite diverse. I mean, I I really had friends who were, you know, young women. And um, it it seemed very nicely mixed to me. Mm -hmm. So that showed me that I loved mathematics. Uh, It was especially the uh, geometry uh, course taught on the Moore method style by Edmund Ike Deaton. Um, (laughs) And so he gave us the the structure, the theorems, and said, prove these theorems. And it was really fun solving those puzzles. Um, So that left me with um, just a knowledge that mathematics was something that I really loved. But then when I went to college at Pomona College, following in the footsteps of my two older sisters who had also gone there, made it easy for me, I said that I wanted to be pre-med because at my at that time, being a doctor was like the main way to go and be, you know, a good high earning smart person. But I would major in mathematics. So um, and I. um had a little bit of advanced placement. I liked the class that I was in. I excelled. I did. It was easy for me. I also really loved chemistry. Um, but uh, it wasn't long before I realized that that pre-med thing was just something I was saying and that it was mathematics that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I had professors who were able to engage me in research even after my sophomore year at college. And um Again, in, in after my junior year, there was an undergraduate research program in the bicentennial year, the bicentennial mm-hmm. undergraduate research program, BURP. We had, <laughs> we had seven, seven students working on a problem about malaria. So I thought that I wanted to go into applied mathematics, but um, and I had uh, was awarded an NSF graduate fellowship. And I only applied to two schools. I don't know what I was thinking, but um, I applied to Minnesota for its great applied math program and MIT for its great math program. Well, MIT wrote me back and said, "Um, we're putting you in the pure mathematics pile because that's what you say in your personal statement. Because I I talked about, um, I don't know, maybe algebraic topology or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I ended up um, uh, being in the pure mathematics program at MIT. My memory, and this could be faulty, but I remember that our entering class, I think it might have been 12 people, was equally split between men and women. And we we were talking at that time about, you know, how this was really the way of the future. And but perhaps cynically thinking, yeah, well, MIT can afford to bring the, you know, these six highly qualified women. Uh, You know, they get their pick of whoever is available in that year. So, um. It was in college and then in graduate school that I started to have personal psychological problems. And some of this was centered around being gay. 
that I didn't acknowledge that I had, you know, gay feelings as, you know, as a college student until it was nearly time to graduate. Mm -hmm. But and I really very actively suppressed all those feelings because I could tell from the community around me that it was just not okay to be gay, that that's not the kind of people that, you know, have successful careers like you want to have and so on. When I got to MIT, Boston was, that would have been in 1977. Boston just had a beautiful culture, uh, you know, a gay culture that was growing and people starting to live in the sunlight like I live now. Mm -hmm. and, but um, I really felt that I, um, I could not, you know, walk into that space really. And um, because of my background of imitating my older siblings and only showing the behaviors that looked good, mm. I developed a habit of not being seen. So I went to great lengths to hide everything that I was doing unless it was something that looked good. So the world saw less and less and less of me. Mm -hmm. And I did complete my studies at MIT. You know, I completed them. And uh, I did well enough to get a postdoctoral job at Brown University. But then um, this separation between the outer face that I showed the world and the destruction that was happening inside of me, mm -hmm. the barrier just grew greater and greater and greater. Mm -hmm. And um, so it really was a very difficult time. I was not successful mathematically, although I was successful enough to get a job. Um, and I don't know how I did that, except that um, I just had learned a lot of skills about how to still remain looking good on the outside while I was really suffering on the inside. Mm -hmm. And if I have a regret about that time, it's that I wish that there had been more of a culture of... Um, really seeing people for who they are mm -hmm. and inviting people to participate with their whole selves. Mm -hmm. um, because I felt that there was a part of me that was unacceptable and had to be hidden away. And so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't that anyone overtly was telling me that I was not welcome, but I just got so many signals that I believed that I was unwelcome and then acted on those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, fast forward through the 80s, it, it wasn't until the end of the 80s that I started to change my life and find a more positive path for myself. I had tried, I had struggled to continue with the same kind of research that I had done in graduate school. Um, that was difficult for me. I didn't have human connections because I really had severed quite a number of my human connections. So I was trying in isolation to do very difficult work and it just, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I felt the need um, as my life started to get better, as I started getting to a uh, mindset of recovery, I'll say, mm -hmm. um, I started realizing that I had to reinvent myself mathematically. And I did a little bit of work in mathematical economics, which um, I think my, my most cited paper continues to be one in the monthly about the Gini index, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a wonderful thing to, it, it was a wonderful mm -hmm. project for me mm -hmm. uh, and a wonderful thing to share. But then in the late 90s, I started working on mathematical art. And that has led me to connect the geometry that I've loved really since that program, NSF program, when I was 15, mm -hmm. connect that geometry to art and to um, things that other people, uh, you know, like to hear about and like to see about, to mm -hmm. like to see. Mm -hmm. So, um, and 
I guess I want to explain a little bit about what I've found in the realm of mathematical art, because when I came on the scene, it was like everyone was uh, dazzled by fractals in the 90s, which, you know, that's fine. That You know, everyone loves <laughs> fractals. Why not? And then there was another thread of discrete mathematics about polyhedra and finite structures. But I come from the land of continuous mathematics and spaces of functions. And I couldn't believe that no one else had exploited the idea that there are these beautiful design spaces, spaces of functions that contain amazingly beautiful symmetric things. And then an artist can sort of wander through those design spaces and select designs that are beautiful. And then you get to show those to others. And by design space, I mean, in some of these structures, there are certain numbers that are integers that if you change those, then it would change like, I don't know, a five-pointed shape to a six-pointed shape. Mm -hmm. But you leave those alone and you're still going to get the thing with the same symmetry. But then there are lots of things that you can wiggle and get variations on that. And then you can um, make things uh, uh, wiggle around and weave. And I've been just enjoying this so much. And I can't believe that no one else was playing in this sandbox. <laughs> so it's very gratifying to me when I hear that someone has, you know, read my book or is starting to play with these structures and, um, you know, make things uh, in, the, in the style that I've been making things. Mm -hmm. um, I just heard this summer from a man in Belgium who wrote to me and said, I've read your book. And, you know, in your book, you say that you haven't really implemented this in the best way on a computer. And here's some free octave code that I'd like you to consider to, you know, make wallpaper. So I'm back making wallpaper and collaborating with a guy in Belgium. And uh, it's it just feels so beautiful to be um, to feel that I am participating in our math community with my whole self, because mm -hmm. I suffered for many years with the feeling that my whole self was not welcome in this community, did not belong on the earth. I used to say to myself, I've heard that it takes all kinds to make a world, but I am not one of those kinds. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Frank, your your story is just so compelling. Um, there's There's a lot to to unpack there. Um, can I take you back a little ways? Um, and let's, let's, I'd like to ask you when you were growing up, um, who you found your helpers were, who were supportive of you? Uh, it sounds like you have a very supportive family, but maybe outside of your family, who did you find that helped you along your way or helped you find your math love? I still remember the names of my elementary teachers. Uh, Mrs. Chambers was, you know, just comes to mind. Mrs. Griffin. Uh, I can't decide whether many of those teachers made a lot of me because I was talented and how much because they knew that my father was one of the school administrators for the district. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in high school, really, Every teacher that I worked with was kind to me, um, saw, you know, a spark to nurture. So, and I just picture this group of people who, um, you know, they were working in a, uh, you know, a good school district in a suburban area. So, uh, you know, that, that certainly is an advantage. But I look across them and I don't see one as standing out, uh, but they were as a group. Um, 
just a wonderful group of people to be educated by. I have a friend from that era who just claimed that our high school was awful and, you know, that the offerings were limited and, uh, you know, that he didn't, he realized later that he didn't learn anything there. And I I can't help feeling that he went to a different high school. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, um, one person who helped me greatly was Peggy Smith Bailey, my piano teacher. Um, You know, I I studied with her for about 14 years and Mm -hmm. that was, she really, challenged me and exposed me to great music, you know, modern music, as well as the classics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you still playing? Yes. Do you find a, um, a special place in the music? Is there something special about music? I know you're very musical and I, I've heard you sing and... Um... Yeah, it's um, it it just um provides an emotional vocabulary for life. So that um, I think that during the pandemic, everyone in the world has mourning to work through, and I'm very aware of the mechanisms of mourning and how it, you know, takes over time in our lives. And so we need therapeutic activities so that we can realize what we're feeling. Because when there is, you know, tragedy, as in the pandemic and so many difficulties around the world, our minds will not let us realize those immediately. So we need to work through our mourning and come into a place of greater acceptance. Mm -hmm. And for me, music provides an emotional vocabulary for working through that mourning. That's one example of the kind of uh, why it's important, I think, for a person to have an emotional vocabulary to use in times of trouble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take you back even earlier to 1972 when you talked about the summer science training program at San Diego. You were 15. So that's sort of can be a challenging age, but you loved it. So what was going on there? You found your tribe, but what was the environment like? Well, I think that part of it was the contrast of what I had come from because I was starting in high school to feel different and to understand that I was different. And for not being a jocular person, um, my high school was starting to become a little uncomfortable for me. And suddenly all of that was removed and everyone seemed to be on an equal footing. Um, People just were in a spirit of enjoying together. But then also intellectually, um, to to be among people who wanted to rise to the challenge of proving theorem five in the geometry (laughs) list, you know, uh, and uh, then the another of the classes was abstract algebra, where they were working us with abstract structures. And then the, the third was a combination of logic and computer programming. So just the fact that um, the students had that to engage with, as well as, you know, there were social activities, there were fun things. Um, It just seemed to really work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I want to ask you a hard question, but I think there are a lot of listeners who could really benefit from this. You were talking about when you were at MIT, sounds like towards the end of your time, you were becoming less seen because you were trying to balance this outer world and inner world. And I'm just going to guess that a lot of listeners face this same challenge, maybe not the exact same circumstances. And I wonder if you could just offer some very practical insight, not like a not like a cliche, but like practical insight for how not to go down the tunnel of becoming less and less seen. 
Yeah, I think um, I, I've tried to go through the mental exercise of going back and giving myself advice during that era. Mm-hmm. And I think the advice has to be, um, it's going to feel like taking an enormous risk, but find some trusted person to confide in. Find people to confide in. Um, I had a lot of fears about um, you know, what I would lose by confiding. And in hindsight, I... Um, I think that many of those had built up inside of my own mind. As I um, changed and became a more open human being, I've realized that many of the other people out there are also experiencing self-doubt and also building that barrier between the inner and the outer. So um, I'm grateful for structures now present in our, um, you know, in our various institutions that invite um conversation about who we really are and what are we really feeling and what obstacles are we facing. Um, in, in the old days, you know, I'm speaking like an old person, um, it really was, um, you don't, you, you don't want to be seen as a person who's not one of the best. Um, so that's the risk that I was unable to take. And then, you know, I suffered for it. So I think the very practical advice is you'll suffer less probably if you take those risks and mm-hmm. find that trusted person to confide in and get the help that you need. Because no matter how much you might feel like your problem is absolutely the only, I'm the only one in the world who has the problem X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. No, it turns out there's a whole community people uh, <laughs> dealing with that problem. So uh, if people can connect to these sources of help, then that's my, my best advice. Frank, as you were finding um, during your later years at MIT, as you were finding that um, you were discovering who you were, did you feel supported from your family and your friends from high school and and, uh, earlier in life? I'm afraid not. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Even in my later life, um, my... um, it was difficult to talk about being gay with my family. And there are family members who um, I was told not to approach about this topic. So mm-hmm. we're just not going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, they, you know, my family is wonderful and I love them, but uh, there it, it was not the source for me of support. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of many family members have been lovely. And uh, it's just that during that time at MIT, no, um, I was I was on my own with that mm-hmm. one. It must really sort of aggravate the situation to be told that there are people in your life who you care deeply about that you shouldn't share your whole self with. Yes, that's a, I, I'm, uh, yeah. that is a source of grief. You know, I feel yeah. that I've, I've come to accept that that was the, the way the times were. Um, I did have some friends with college, from college who we, you know, gradually came to realize that we were gay uh, together. Uh, but it really was this idea that we belonged to a secret society mm-hmm. and that there was no uh, advantage to be found in uh, ever making this public. Okay. I know that you happen to be a chair of a department. You're active in a lot of different communities. You have a flourishing research program. And we'd like for you to tell us about 
you have the same 24 hours in the day as everybody else. How do you prioritize your day and your activities? What does that look like for you? I really try to give my per- myself permission to simply drop balls. I um, <laughs> The guy who was chair before me came to me and said, this is a, a big department with too much going on. You're only one person, except that you're going to make mistakes and then forgive yourself and move on. Mm-hmm. I think that's very valuable. And it's a little grating to me, to the, perf- you know, the old perfectionist in me to try to accept that advice. But I really do try to just tell myself, it's okay to not do this. It's okay. It's okay. Um, occasionally, that strategy does uh, have me losing sleep. Often when there's something critical that needs to be written, you know, a report for schools, you know, so we have to, chairs have to write a lot of reports. I will spend the four to 5 a.m. window mentally writing that in my head and, you know, instead of sleeping. So that that is a little bit of a risk. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I take a nap later. Somehow it's okay. (laughs) But uh, accepting that I'm not going to do everything is really important or not to do everything correctly is very important. Another important strategy is to just mercilessly delegate to say, um, oh, well, we're a big department, so you're going to do this. So, you know, to to make assignments, to twist arms. And, um, you know, I I spent a certain amount of time acting on stage and I I do have some skills to just, um, you know, say things in a way that people believe me and accept that. Oh, oh yeah. okay. It's like it's almost like the voice of, you know, from from Dune, I guess the voice of command. I don't know what it is, but uh, (laughs) somehow I'm able to talk people into doing things without them. Uh, being angry at me or hating me and and sometimes feeling that it's their idea. Oops, don't let that secret out. <laughs> Could you tell us an aspect of your life in which you feel that you are still a student? Yeah, and it, it's being a teacher um, because the the more I listen to my colleagues about teaching, the more I feel that my own teaching is a land of missed opportunities. And um as a performer, you know, I've, I've sung on stage Gilbert and Sullivan repertoire. It was most natural for me to go into the classroom and transmit and mm-hmm. do it really well. You know, I would give great transmissions. And especially, um, you know, at the time when I when I felt that, you know, this big gulf between the inside and the outside, I would actively imagine putting on a character as I walked into onto campus Mm -hmm. to go into the classroom, to be the character that, you know, could be the perfect teacher. And, you know, looking back that, you know, I I had students who have become very successful. So, you know, in a way I don't have regrets there, but I just realized I'm a missed opportunity in not doing more to listen to my students. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, and part of it is why I'm, uh, I'm, I've just accepted another term as chair is that um, it means less teaching for me. So I think that if I were to go into a teaching intensive schedule now, the judgments like trying to implement the good advice about how to be a better teacher, I think that would exhaust me more than the role of chair right now. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that at my age, I'm just not feeling like there's a whole nother round of learning to teach calculus again. So um, I'm I'm sticking with teaching some smaller upper division classes uh, mm-hmm. during my time as chair. Mm-hmm. And after that, I, I may retire. We'll see. 
<laughs> I would call that leveraging your strengths, having an honest assessment of where you are, living with your whole self and your whole self right now, you've, you've got the chair thing down. Mm-hmm. As a sort of PS on that, um, one of the skills that you really have is you are really good at identifying um, positive aspects of people's careers and shining a light on them. I've seen you do this with me. I've seen you do this with other people. How did you learn that? Does it come naturally to you? Do you have to work at it? What does it look like? I think it's a response to what I really wanted when I was a younger person. And I acknowledge my own fault in hiding myself, but I really wanted to be seen. And then there I was actively not seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what you're, um, what you've experienced in my career or, you know, identified in my career is just my even unconscious response to what I wanted when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You have told us about your time at MIT where you just weren't comfortable. Um, but could you tell us a place uh, or a, a, an environment now where you feel like you really belong, some place where you can really let your guard down and you feel very comfortable as part of a community? Well, my, my first answer to your question was that I've just come away from a week-long retreat in the Sierra Nevada. Mm. And that was my place to feel perfectly comfortable and perfect, re- perfectly relaxed in the company of trees. <laughs> I was, uh, my husband stayed home. Um, there are various reasons for, he stayed home just for that week. And um, I took great pleasure in knowing that no one wanted anything of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had work to do, but I could do it at my own time. And I was there just supposed to be on retreat. So um, as an introvert, I really value times when I get to just be by myself. Mm-hmm. But you asked about community. And um, I would say that the MAA has given me a wonderful feeling of community. Um, and there, I, I think it was the Centennial Math Fest that I just walked around that conference and um, you know, it was my pleasure to bring my sister, Carol, who lives in DC, mm-hmm to um, one of the uh, parties, maybe it was a publications party, uh, something like that. And she got to see me interacting with the MAA community. And she just really commented on um, how comfortable a community that was. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was really fun for me to show her that experience. And it helped me understand that um, Back in the old days, I would walk around the JMM, uh, MathFest wasn't a thing then, and I would actively try to avoid people. I would not want to be seen. Mm-hmm. I would very, like, just really on a uh, minute by minute basis, I would say, oh, there's so and so, and I can't see them. Uh, and now I walk around the JMM and MathFest, and it's just, a, you know, feels like everyone has their heart open and, you know, ready to participate and ready to share. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's one example of a community where I've come to feel very comfortable. And I'm, I'm so grateful for all the things that, you know, the structures that support that. And so it makes me want to try to help that community become more welcoming because, you know, I'm aware that people are, um, you know, not all people feel equally welcome, you know, that uh, 
happy experience that I'm reporting is uh, after decades of you know doing a certain kind of work, mm-hmm. and so I want to help others feel that this kind of, this MAA community is wonderfully welcoming. Mm-hmm. Do you have ideas for how the MAA could work on that, or or uh, other uh, mathematical institutions work on becoming more welcoming? I guess I, I enjoy the idea of spaces for people in subpopulations to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. The gay receptions at the joint math meetings have been very valuable to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've been going since the first ones. Um, and uh, there was at MathFest a, a, a meeting of Spectra, which is the new name for the LBGTQ plus uh, community. It, it, was, uh, it was very small, but then it was scheduled opposite Doris Schottschneider, who is one of the best lecturers anyone knows. I wanted to just ask, um, we've in our podcast series, we've interviewed some other authors and we like to talk to you about the book process. So talk to us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for your book, the process, so on. I was asked to give a talk at MathFest in 2010, and um, I had been working on wallpaper and similar ideas about symmetry for about 12 years at that time. And so I put together a talk that included kind of everything I knew. It was a very dense talk. And... um, Steve Kennedy heard that talk and invited me to come to Carleton as the Benedict Distinguished Visiting Professor. I was uh, invited to teach a seminar for juniors and seniors, and I realized that the outline for this course about my work, uh, it was turning into the chapters of a book that later uh, became called Creating Symmetry, the Artful Mathematics of Wallpaper Patterns. So for me, it was a very organic process of research building up until I felt that I had a coherent story and then organizing that story by teaching it to a wonderful group of people. And then uh, that put me in a position to seek a book contract. I found Vicki Kern very encouraging uh, at Princeton University Press. And uh, I got a contract, I think, in 2013. And then writing the book was a great pleasure for me. I realized that um, once I knew what I wanted to say, I could simply sit down and write a chapter. So there were even times when I wrote a chapter in a day. Um, And uh, revising, you know, I do revise, but I also find that um, the more I write, and it was serving as editor of Mathematics Magazine that helped me learn about this. But as I write, I do more revision as I go. So, you know, I'll write a little sentence and then realize that it, it's in the wrong order and that, you know, the important information should come first. So um, because I revise as I go, um, th- there's no, there's not often, sometimes there is, but there is not often a time where I throw away what I've written and then have to write it from scratch again. So um, I learned to write, there were um, three stages, I guess. High school English, uh, an AP teacher, Mrs. Robinson, Muriel Robinson, you know, she really taught me a lot of basics and had me writing at a sophisticated level. I did not write very much at all during college or graduate school. But then uh, through those years, I was journaling. 
So I have just volumes and volumes and volumes of journal. And that really is a good way to learn how to write because then you read it later and you communicate with your past self. And that's very helpful, teaches you things about what's wrong uh, or what's right, you know, helps you appreciate. But it also um, it made me realize uh, linguistic tics, you know, ways that I was writing that were obscure, um, you know, things that, you know, my go to phrases that maybe I don't have to uh, always use that structure. So and then the, the third stage was be serving as editor of Mathematics magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read a book, um, Style, Ten Lessons of Clarity and Grace by Joseph Williams, who's the writing guru, guru at Chicago. And that really opened my eyes to some structural things uh, about writing. Mm-hmm. So I, I went through those stages of learning to write so that by the time I got to the book, I felt that I was a fluid and established writer. And it just it was really a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that whether it's in um teaching or lecturing or writing, just the the thought that someone else wants to hear what you have to offer is a great pleasure. And that's a, a great source of energy is feeling that, oh yeah, someone might read this. So I, I did kind of pour my heart into my book and I'm delighted with the production values. Um, I wish it would sell more copies, but I do understand that it's kind of a specialty book. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little hard. Um, mm-hmm but it does tell the whole story of my um, approach to symmetry. Mm-hmm. What have you done with the, the art that comes out of your, your mathematical study? Uh, what sort of things have you created? Well, most recently I, um, I got a commission from uh, Karen Sachs is furnishing a new um, office for the AMS uh, Washington branch. And she asked me for some art too. And she, we went into it knowing that there was a space on a wall that needs filling. Mm-hmm. And so I, I showed her a piece that I had created for a show at Bowdoin College. Um, and uh, it, it's a really long panel that's a metamorphosis so that there's one kind of wallpaper gradually changing into another kind of wallpaper. And this is all done with analysis. It's meant as an homage to MC Escher, but it doesn't, you know, MC Escher had meticulous ways to change one pattern into another. And this was all done with analysis but it creates these five bands of color. They're the five wallpaper types that use the hex grid. And Mm -hmm. so one gradually changing into another, into another, into another. And it it makes this sweep. So for the AMS headquarters, we're printing that at 72 inches wide and I think 24 inches tall. Mm -hmm. And there are two of them that are mirror images. So you see the progression uh, sort of into the orange and then from the orange through the blue back to the, the other way. And on one of the panels, the source photographs are put underneath. So on one, it's purely abstract. And on the other, you can see, oh, this is the photograph of the poppy that gave rise to these orange colors mm-hmm. in the uh, the pattern. Mm, very so, nice. And that's printed on aluminum. I work with a printer who prints directly on aluminum and can mm-hmm. ship directly to people. So um, digital prints on aluminum is one kind of thing that I've done. I also have a series of small um, metal sculptures uh, the, I, uh, the real master in this format is Vladimir Bulatov, who uses completely different strategies for making beautiful little metal sculptures. Another in, really important name is Bathsheba Grossman. But I, 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 I know this is a podcast, but I'll hold one up to the camera here. Um, you know, these are things that are made with the technique of Fourier series 
where there's a large design space and you wiggle the designs until you find something beautiful. So those are, you know, small printed sculptures uh, that fit in your hand. Mm -hmm. um, I did have an extraordinary opportunity to um, uh, go back to the heritage of vibrating wallpaper because the way I started getting into wallpaper was to imagine that wallpaper was a solution to the linear wave equation which really sort of came out of nowhere. But so when I make wallpaper patterns, they have a natural way to progress into the future, to vibrate up and down or, you know, in whatever dimension. So um, I made a movie of in five acts of, it actually starts with that same golden poppy, the California poppy of a, the simplest kind of uh, three-fold symmetric wallpaper vibrating for about a minute and a half or two minutes, I forget. And then it goes to a landscape of Sierra Nevada. And then it shows my sweet peas that I grow in San Jose. And then it shows the destruction of trees in the Sierra Nevada. And then it comes back to the stars. The, so it's a, a little film in five acts. And um, I, I'm friends with the director of the San Jose Chamber Orchestra, Barbara Turner, and she commissioned a composer, Bill Sussman, to write a composition called In a State of Patterns. And uh, so I got to go to a live performance with the San Jose Chamber Orchestra where um, I was controlling a computer that was projecting these vibrating wallpaper images that they just slowly morph. They keep the pattern type and it really just looks like they're, they're evolving in a very organic way that I find very beautiful. While the chamber orchestra was playing his composition sort of keyed to the music. So that, and they, they, I can offer a, um, uh, a mock-up of the performance on my, it's there on my YouTube channel that you could find Ferris Math Art, but I can't offer the actual performance because of, you know, issues with the union performers, which I think is right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, from prints to hang on the wall, to sculptures, to a movie that actually got to be accompanied by an orchestra, I've been really grateful for opportunities to show this. It seems to me that um, a lot of, in a lot of situations for commissioned art, people are very interested in things that might have a mathematical connection. Mm -hmm. That said, I don't want to detract from uh, the, I, I don't want to take up market share from artists who are using mathematics and doing that in order to make their living at mathematical art, because mm -hmm. I'm fully supported by a university. Mm -hmm. You know, I have enough. So I'm very interested and eager to share my things but I'm not especially interested in taking away opportunities from someone else who might be making a living with their mathematical art. Mm -hmm. I want to go out on a limb here and ask you a question about your movie. You described the sweet peas in San Jose, the trees in Sierra Nevada, where you just came back from your retreat, the poppy from California, where you grew up. Is it a sort of autobiographical piece? Well, it's a depiction of my my landscape, the landscape of my life. And I, I'm a native Californian. I'm a fourth generation Californian. My family has been tied to the Sierra Nevada since, um, you know, the gold rush. And uh, so it's when I look for, you know, that emotional vocabulary that I was mm -hmm. talking about with piano, you know, what are the images that fit that, you know, the emotional vocabulary of my life. And so it's, it's those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also uh, chose them for um, color progression. Mm -hmm. so. 
If you look back, you you were thinking or speaking earlier about um, reading old journals and reflecting on who you were and how you've um, progressed in as far as your writing. But if you look at the broad swath of your life, um, going from not wanting anyone to see who you were to now you're in front of large audiences and showing little bits of your your personal life and your childhood and parts of who you are emotionally. Uh, wow, what what do you think when you take in all that? That's that's quite a change, Frank. Sometimes I feel exposed, really, you know, because it's it's a very old mental habit. And, you know, what will they think? And as a very concrete uh, expression of that, uh, people, listeners might want to go look up an article that I wrote for Focus magazine. I think it might have been uh, in 2018. And it was about the, the gay experience in mathematics. And mm-hmm. I ended up telling a very personal story. Mm-hmm. And it, it has my wedding picture from, you know, my wedding with my husband seven years ago. We've been together 37 years, but married for seven. And um, so I was glad to write that. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was written at a time when I felt that I was writing fluidly. And, you know, I enjoyed doing it very much. And I wanted to tell that story. Uh, because there's there's an important little bit of history about, you know, the gay receptions and so on. So I, I wrote that story and offered it. But there was this moment when I pushed the button to finalize the page proofs. You know, that when, mm-hmm. when you write something, they send you, here are the page proofs and, you know, tell us that they are finalized. And so I said, they are finalized. <clears throat> and I had this blast from the 80s of, oh, my God, what have I done? Now mm-hmm. everyone will know. Mm-hmm. And it it really took me just a little bit to calm down from that because, you know, we're primates and patterns established during one part of our life are going to come back in another part of our life. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I gave that fearful young man a talking to and uh, tried to be glad, you know, and grateful. Um, I, I just can't imagine having uh, more privilege and freedom than I have now. Mm-hmm. I just feel f- so fortunate and it makes me want to share that with others. That's wonderful. Okay, so... Okay, I'm ready for rapid fire, I guess. Our first... We have five rapid fire questions, and the first one is a fill-in-the-blank, and it's the only fill-in-the-blank. So, mathematics is... Beautiful. Good. What's the last book you read that you could not put down? The Expanse. Hmm. It's a multi-volume hard science fiction series. It's been made into a not so great television show, but it's just the volumes are, are they 700 pages, something like that? Mm -hmm. And I've read eight of them during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Recommended by Jeffrey Hofstein. Where's a place that you really love and enjoy? The Sierra Nevada. Um, And, uh, can I give a long answer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, my parents started a cabin in 1946 on U.S. forest land that is leased land. It evolved into the heart of my family. And, um, you know, this very established tradition, it's now, it's been shared among my four siblings. Uh, I'm the cabin treasurer. And, um, you know, we have over decades figured out how to go there. And 
whenever I was asked to picture picture myself in a beautiful location, my my healing spot, my place of power, it's porch of the cabin, you know, looking up at these amazing trees. Well, the Creek Fire last summer just completely burned this to the ground. It was a fire tornado. And I went last week and stood on the land and it's devastating. The trees will not come back um, for decades. So, you know, when I think about my healing place and then understand that this fireball passed through it, you know, that's a real cause for mourning in my life. And I'm just aware that we have to take time for that. Mm-hmm. But we were insured. And so as the cabin treasurer, I was the holder of the insurance policy. And um, so that meant that I got the insurance payoff. And my brother identified a cabin in our same neighborhood, a family that was kind of done with the Sierra Nevada and didn't want to deal with the possibility of fires. It's in a beautiful forested area, pretty near a creek. Um, It's the same kind of land. It's just like a quarter mile walk from the old place. So we purchased it. And that's where I I was staying. It's not quite ready for occupancy, but I was uh, camping out there sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, out of the morning of the loss, there's this joy of, oh, yeah, there's this new place. And I really loved seeing how it... um, you know, it was, it's going to meet the needs of our family. And on Friday, I got to have my niece and her husband and their two wonderful kids come and sort of meet the new place. And we walked down to the um, in stream inlet on the lake and swam uh, with them. And so, you know, that place, the long answer to rapid fire, but it's, it's you know, that, that little corner of the Sierra Nevada. And I know that little part of the mountains really, 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 really well. And I, there are so many, I don't go to Yosemite that often. Uh, there's a lot of Sierra Nevada that I've never been to, but it's that place. Mm-hmm. It's my, you know, the home of my heart. What's on your desk that would surprise us? A 3D printed ceramic sculpture. Wow! Uh, this started life as emulated knitting. So when I was at ISERM for the illustrating mathematics semester, um, I emulated knitting because they had fabric and textile week. And I, so I, you know, I thought, oh, I can make that out of my Fourier series technique. And so I've worked with um, a ceramic artist, Timia Tihanyi, uh, who does mathematical sculpture. And she just, I just received that in the mail a little while ago. So it's uh, about eight inches across, it's circular, it's a cylinder. And on the outside, it looks sort of like it was a knit pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fun question. Fun answer. <laughs> <laughs> and our last rapid fire question is what sound reminds you of home? Well, it really is silence, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but also um, wind in the trees, uh, a, a Sierra Nevada stream, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, birdsong, robins. You're consistent about the Sierra Nevadas. We've got it. We've yeah, got kind of a Johnny One note there. <laughs> Did I say that it was important to me? <laughs> well, Frank, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was a lot of fun talking to Frank. I really enjoy uh, getting to know him a little better. He is so honest. I love the way he told his story. Um, 
he really underscored the importance of the formative years. Mm-hmm. Um, starting when he was 15, that really such a can be such an awkward age. And he had such a formative experience where he found his people, his tribe, as he put it. Then he had a chance to do undergraduate research. Um, I also, I want to say I really liked it, but that's not the right word. I appreciated the way he talked about his experience at MIT, where he was trying to balance what he felt on the inside with what he felt like he had to convey on the outside. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us feel like that. And he's really a champion of aligning those two. And then as he went on in his life, especially when he talked about mathematics and art, you could just feel the energy and the joy mm-hmm. that he experiences now because he found a way to balance those two pieces of himself. Mm-hmm. And I love the way he talked about music as a place where he learned to ex- to gain his emotional vocabulary for life. And mm-hmm. it made me ask myself where I gained that vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I loved his advice to chairs. You have permission to drop balls. This from the perfectionist that he is. <laughs> and finally, I would be remiss without saying he gave a great description for how to write and how to improve your writing, starting with high school. Mm-hmm. Basically, high school training, journaling, editing, and then he recommended a good book. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you are so right. Good points you make. Um, I I think his story was just particularly powerful about you know being in a in a not good place when he was in college, and really how he's was able to draw himself out of that over the years. And, and he is in such a joyful, happy place now and um, such beautiful mathematics he creates. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. So this is Bill Indiana. We're counting you all in until next time. See you. Count Me In with Del Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson.